know, um, there's nothing that we can bring. There's nothing that we bring to the equation here <laughs> other than uh, hearts that are actively seeking you um, and that are willing to lift up a praise to your name uh, because of who you are and what you've done. God, uh, thank you for filling this place with your presence. Thank you that we can stand freely in you and sing out to you. Thank you that we can uh, learn with our brothers and sisters. Thank you for your word, which is true, for your son whose love overcomes. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this place. Amen. You may be seated. I will sing of your love on Sundays. Only sing of your love on Sundays. I will sing of your love on Sundays. Then this feeling is gone by Monday. I surrender some. I surrender.
That's an option for you if you're interested. Brothers and sisters, I'm happy to be here with you again this week um, to talk about worship, to continue our conversation on worship in spirit and in truth. Like we started last week, just to do a quick recap, since there are at least twice as many people here (laughs) this week than we had last week. Vacation must be great. I have no idea what, I don't don't know when I, what's a vacation? What does that even mean? Uh, But so last week, We spent time talking about worship, what it is, why we do it, how we do it, how we should do it. And we learned overarchingly that worship should be in spirit and in truth. That is what God requires because he made us, he shaped us, he formed us. He requires us to worship him and we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. And we put it sort of into this pattern. The more we know about God and his word, which is the truth, the more we appreciate him. The more we appreciate him, the deeper our worship, which is spirit. Worship and spirit is the passion in which we worship God. And the deeper our worship, the more God is glorified, which is the only point of worship. So I'm excited uh, about this morning because last week I gave us a little spoiler alert that today we would be talking about corporate worship. And corporate worship means the body of Christ. It's this, when we gather together. This is corporate worship. Um, full disclosure for this morning, as I was preparing for today, it, ooh, I, was, I was not in a good place. I was struggling and I was frustrated because I couldn't connect. I couldn't make this come together. Daryl graciously spent an hour with me on Wednesday and sort of helped to unscramble my brain a little bit, but it was still scrambled. And then someone gave me some much, much needed support and encouragement and the reminder to speak from my heart. And so by Thursday night, I figured out why I was having such a hard time with this. Because at Grace Life, typically we like to put, uh, put the message together um, contextually, historically. Oh, what about man? What do you do? God, theologically, what about God? What did he do? And then we think about our devotional application. And I realized that the reason I was, couldn't connect, I mean, I was struggling. And a struggling and frustrated Meggie is not who you want to be around ever. <laughs> It's not, it's bad news bears. But I realized why, and it's because our worship, worship doesn't start with man. Worship starts with God, what God does for us. And so we're going to sort of throw that historical, theological, devotional pattern out the window today. We're going to make up our own. It's called Theostorical. Everybody need to go get coffee. Actually, that might have been sort of lame, but what it is, is it's kind of like a call. Um, if we pattern a worship service as a call and response, right? God calls, we respond. God calls, we respond. We're going to start and we're going to interweave really the theological component and the historical components together. But we do have a title for our first section, Worship in Spirit and Truth. It's not just for New Testament believers. <laughs> I'm trying here, people. Uh, So let's get started. After freeing 
the people of Israel from Egypt, they were enslaved. 400 years they were enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh's rule. God frees them and he makes an agreement with them. If you want to call this agreement, let's call it a covenant. He makes an agreement with them. The covenant has a promise that says, I will be your God. And it has a requirement. It says, you will be my people. Let's understand that people is plural. It's the community. It's the assembly of people. And for the people, the people had a requirement on their end of the deal, right? So first they would worship God and God. And this is not an exclusive list of everything that was under their agreement, but just some of the stuff I wanted to call out today. They would worship God and God alone. He is first. He is foremost. He is above all things. He is first in line always. They would worship him in specific ways that were given to them by God. Because like I said last week, we don't always do so good trying to figure out what God wants on our own. We don't do good with that. And God knows that because he's God. And so he helps us. He helps us by telling uh, us, he told them how they were to worship him. And he also told them how they were to live in community with one another. How they were to relate and to treat one another. Because how, how we treat each other has always been very, very important to God. Always has been, always will be. And so the people respond, and they respond affirmatively. It's in Exodus 19.6. All the people answered, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They signed the contract. They signed up for it. And so when we look throughout the pages of our Old Testament, we see God's people, the assembly. That's the, what the word we see in Hebrew translates into assembly. We see the assembly gathered together. And they are worshiping God and they are following all of these worship rules, that third bullet that he set out for them. But remember how I gave us our catchy title that worship in spirit and truth, it's not just for New Testament believers. See, they followed the rules, but God isn't a God of rules. God is a saving God. God is a God who saves people from their slavery, whatever bondage of slavery they are in. God is a God who saves us by his grace. God is a God of compassion. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of forgiveness. God is a God who looks in and rescues us when we can't save ourselves out of pure compassion. And somewhere along the way, God's people, their worship fell off the rails a little bit. They, they were really good. They were really good at the worship ritual. In fact, they kind of excelled at it. We see it through the Old Testament. We see it through the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus kind of picks on it a little bit too. All of the stuff that they're doing right because they excelled at executing the ritual of worship. But the heart and spirit in which they worshiped, how they worshiped, how they treated one another in the community, how they fulfilled that extra requirement of God, it pointed towards they kind of forgot that they were supposed to do that. But God didn't forget. And he saw. And he was angry. Isaiah 29, 13, there's a lot of passages in our, New, in our Old Testament that talks about how frustrated God was that they lost the heart of their worship. Here's one of them. Uh, the Lord says, these people come near. Oh, I would hate it if God ever said this to us. Can I just say that? I said it. The Lord said, 
These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules taught by men. See, worship in spirit and truth, it mattered to God, even back then. And how the people over-focused, they over-focused on the worship ritual and they forgot about what mattered to God. How they treated others, how they welcomed the stranger, how they defended the widow and the poor, how they cared for the oppressed. That was part of the package. That's what they were supposed to do. Then they forgot. And as a result, they were met with God's judgment. But thankfully, God is a God who saves. God is a God of promises. God is a God who keeps his promises. And because his plan has always been to gather his people back to himself, God, again, acting in infinite grace and mercy and compassion, he sends himself in the form of his son, Jesus, to fulfill All of the requirements, all that worshipy stuff, the stuff that I mentioned, there's a lot of other stuff that I didn't mention. He sent Jesus to fulfill all of it. He also sent Jesus to establish a new covenant. And this is going to be really surprising to some of you because you've never once heard Joe talk about this new covenant. Hold on to your seats. The new covenant is the gospel. The new covenant with Jesus Christ, it is the gospel. How many of us have never heard Joe talk about the gospel? Only people who have never been here should raise their hands. It's the gospel. It's the message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the new covenant. We're not here necessarily to talk about that today. We're here to talk about worship. So let's talk about what worship looked like in the new covenant. The people in the New Testament, when they gathered together, there was a word for that as well. And it literally means called out think about it we're called out all the time we're called from darkness into light and called out into worship and the called out God's people they worshiped in the temple and around the temple and in the synagogues and if that even surprises you please don't let it like a week earlier they were Jews and they were (laughs) their worship that's what they were used to They were used to worshiping in and around the temple, and they were used to worshiping in the synagogues. And if it sounds weird that they kind of kept their Jewish flow of worship, please don't let it at all, because here's what their service was. It had scripture reading. It had scripture teaching. It had prayers and praising and blessing. At the end, does any of that sound familiar? Does it sort of sound like what we still do today? Yeah. They fought a little They had some disagreements. I think what's kind of scary to me is that some of the stuff that they fought about back then is the stuff that we still fight about today in some ways, which I'm sure really makes God super thrilled that 2,000 years later, we're still fighting about it. I think probably the only place we have a little bit more fighting now is around music. But other than that, other than that, the people... They gathered together. They were passionate about worshiping God together. They were passionate about worshiping God 
in community. And one of the most striking things we see about this new community of faith, this new community who worshiped together, is the barriers of race and nationality and culture and class and their former religion from like a week ago. None of that even mattered because they all were gathered under Jesus and stood as a holy family, one family, united in him, united in the bonds of grace. And that family had an incredible focus on building the body. They built the body up. Well, their worship didn't have any requirements, requirements like the Old Testament church did, their agreement. I still think it's like, I, I still think that's kind of the worship that God wants for us today, that we gather together and we build up the body of Christ through our worship. So let's move on to our devotional application. No catchy title for this one. Don't be disappointed. It just is what it is. So pursuing, I can't be that clever, not when I'm, you know, trying to pull all this together. Uh, How do we apply what we learned today? This is another part that I never thought this is not the direction I intended to head today. I was told to follow my heart, and I did. So pursuing God daily throughout the week, the six days before we get here, between reading his word and studying our Bibles and praying together and doing extra things like we did last week when we had that takeaway, right, where we're going to find a word about God, we're going to pray on that word, and we're going to ask God to show us and reveal to us how he is that word. And by the way, thank you to all of you who have shared with us the words that you're praying, what you want God to show to you. Thank you. We are praying with you. We can't wait to hear how God reveals that to you. But doing all of our stuff, the Monday through Saturday stuff, is so critical. Because what we do Monday through Saturday, we bring through the doors with us. When we step in here on Sunday morning, it has a tremendous impact. Our worship throughout the week has a tremendous impact on Sunday mornings. And in theory, that impact should always, in theory, it should always be good. Because you have a whole big group. What's probably about 180 people in here right now. We have 180 people who have spent time all week long actively pursuing God, finding out the truth about who he is, stopping and praising him. They're reading their Bibles. They're worshiping. They're doing all of these things. And so is everybody else. So when we come into this room, the impact should be awesome because we're all excited to be here together to worship God in spirit and truth because we know who he is. And so we're so passionate about it. We can't wait to be together to celebrate theory, not the reality. Sad part is, well, it's no, it's not sad. It's reality. We're broken and we're sinful. So no matter how actively we still try to pursue God, we could be so super good at pursuing God. It's so great about spending time in his word and figuring out who he is. We still come through those doors as sinful and broken people. And so this morning... I want us to look at two things, two things that detrimentally impact our ability to worship together in spirit and truth as the body of Christ. The first is shame. Shame is rooted in us individually. Shame is a jerk. Shame tells us that we shouldn't be here. Shame tells us that Jesus the church is great 
but it's not for you because we feel we're humiliated, we feel embarrassment, and so we can't be around. Shame tells us we can't be around really good church people. And the impact that shame has on us individually and in the body of Christ is profound. Shame prevents us, first and foremost, shame prevents us from fully accepting grace. We can't fully accept, shame says, die for everybody but you. Not good enough for you. So that's step one. And then step two, shame prevents us from coming to worship at all. It doesn't let us come here because we can't. We're not saved like everybody else. We're not as good as everybody else. Shame, if we do gather the courage to come through the door, shame can sometimes prevent us from engaging with God's word. Remember how I said worship didn't have any requirements in the New Testament? Not entirely true. <laughs> worship is centered around God's word. All, all of our elements, think about it. We read God's word. We are taught God's word. We sing God's word. We pray God's word. God's word is the requirement of our church now. And shame doesn't let us connect with it, with that truth, the truth of God's word. Shame also prevents us from connecting with others and serving others. Shame says we can't possibly be of any use to anybody else. Can't be of any use to anyone else. And no matter, but here's the thing, no matter what shame tells us, Shame should never, ever, 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 ever make us run away from gathering with our brothers and sisters and worship. Shame should make us run towards, come towards. Shame should make us run as quickly as we can into the arms of our brothers and sisters because it's profoundly impactful. Let me give you an example. Last week, we sang a song called Calvary. And the chorus of that line says, my sin and shame don't count anymore. And I had the very, very, very rare opportunity last week. This is, this is being in worship with you, but I had the opportunity to stand among you last week. I don't get that opportunity very often. And it was profoundly impactful for me. Not as your worship leader. It had nothing to do with some stupid title. Nothing at all. It profoundly, profoundly impacted me as your sister in Christ, who struggles with shame every day, who struggles with shame every time she gets behind that keyboard, every time she opens her mouth, every time. And so there were moments when I was standing there last week where I literally could not sing. I stopped singing. But guess what I heard? I heard you guys singing for me. You guys had the words I could not utter. I couldn't do it. But you guys did. See, when I worship on my own, I can sort of let go of my shame. But it's not until I am within the body of Christ, I am with my brothers and sisters, that I understand just how impactful for good being with my brothers and sisters can be. I realize how I am not alone in my experience. We share our experiences together. We strengthen each other. We find our strength in each other. We find our comfort in each other. And we build each other up, whether we realize it or not. Y'all had no idea you were doing that for me last week, that your sister was standing over there hurting, but your voices lifted her up. It's pretty neat, right? That's the impact that we have that we don't realize it, that corporate worship can be a powerful, powerful antidote for shame. 
And there may be, maybe, I don't know, there may be times in your life where you are tempted to allow shame to prevent you from coming in the doors. Please don't. Don't let it make you run away. Let it make you run towards us. I said there were two things that were detrimentally impacting, uh, that could detrimentally impact us gathering together for worship. First is shame. The second is pride. Pride, pride, pride. Goodness gracious, pride is dangerous. Pride is toxic. Pride is a clever girl. Remember the Jurassic Park, the velociraptor that tapped its toes and waited? It's a clever girl. Pride is very, very clever because she hides in different places. We don't know it's pride. Always, right? It's, oh, humility? No, it's pride. She waits and she lurks. It's hard to pinpoint, hard to identify pride, but she'll always rear her ugly head. And when she does, the effects can be absolutely devastating. The ripple effect that it has within the body of Christ. Why? Because, because the very opposite of worship is pride. Worship is us submitting, us saying that God is above, we are lower, and we're going to honor him. Pride is elevating. Pride puts us above. Pride puts us above in some way, shape, or form. Someone else, something else. And it's not specific to an individual, right? Sure, we have individual pride. It can also uh, impact us as, as a community. We can have a lot of pride. But let's see. It said there are a couple of ways. First, pride absolutely impacts how we connect with others. Let's think about it this way. Pride Pride likes to say, I won't be taught by, I won't be led by, I won't submit to, I won't acknowledge someone else's leadership because I know better, I am better, I know I'm better. Pride is the body, says what we do is better, what we do is righter than what they do. Pride also... Pride is awesome at finding faults. Have you ever noticed that? Our pride likes to find fault with anything where we think we're right and we know better and whatever we're finding fault with is wrong or it's not better. And at church, that happens a lot. We really love to find fault with our leaders, with the service, with the way it's structured, with the way we do things. Trust Joe and I on this. Fault finding is a big deal. It's awesome. You guys... Everybody is good at it. We're all good at it. We find fault with how we serve. We find fault with our programs. We love to pick. And it starts with one and it ripples out to many because, see, we fault find and we, we run the mouth. The mouth gets run to somebody else who maybe had really never thought about it before. But then the next time they see something weird, they, they don't like something in the service, they're right. I don't like the way this is. And it separates us. It separates us from our brothers and sisters. It separates us from God. It separates us from community. Pride is deadly. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, this is what he said about pride. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that this is, I love this, right? They are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God, 
state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. If we can learn anything from our Old Testament brothers and sisters and how they worshipped and what God saw and what mattered most to him, we know that heart absolutely matters and pride is an issue of the heart. Pride is an issue that we have a sick heart. No one is exempt from it. That's the, that's the other piece, right? No one's except, exempt from pride. Not me, not Joe, not anybody in this room. Some of us might be exempt from shame. Maybe some of us don't carry a lot of shame. We can all have a problem with pride. But, but worship, coming together for worship, is one of the most powerful. It can, it can be. If we're aware of it, it can be one of the most powerful antidotes to pride because it is through worshiping as a community that we learn to take our eyes off of self and we learn to place our eyes onto God and onto others. We learn that we can serve God and we can serve others. We can learn that it's okay to submit to each other. It's okay, it's okay to be held accountable by others. And we learn and we live and we love together. Worship together as the body of Christ can be one of the most powerful antidotes for pride and for shame. Don't you love how God does that, how God takes care of the body of Christ? Amazing, right? Last verse before we finish up, Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. There was a time in my life where I probably would have said that joining with brothers and sisters in worship was the worst. Now I can say it's one of my most favorite things to do. It is really the highlight of my week. Because there's something, if we think about what happens when we gather together as the body of Christ, there's something holy and awesome and mysterious and supernatural where all of these individual hearts, all of these individual hearts and minds and bodies join together to create one heart and one mind and one body whose sole focus and sole purpose is lifting up God in worship. I get it. You get it? I get it. Amen. 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 Yeah. I hope that after these last two weeks that you have a better understanding of my view of worship and God's view of worship is spirit and truth um, and how I want to see us worshiping together as a community, regardless of how we're doing it alone, whether we're doing it together, that our worship should be in spirit and truth, that we worship God for the truth of who he is because we know who he is. We have encountered him and we are passionate about him and what he does for us. I want you to continue. The team can come on up if you guys are ready to come up. Um, <laughs> Since Joe's already pacing around over there. <laughs> Live in the light, Carolyn. I hope uh, that you continue. I strongly encourage you. I ask you to continue that word study that we started last week where we find a word that describes God and then we pray about it and we ask God to show it to us. 
Please continue doing that. Please keep coming to worship each week so we can celebrate with all of you so the body of Christ can gather together to worship him and praise him and learn together and grow together and encourage each other and build each other up because we're all sinful and we're all broken. No one is better than anybody else. We are all in this together. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me close in prayer. God, um, we thank you for the truth of who you are. We thank you that you knew enough to say that putting your people in community together would be good for us. That you want us to be together. You want us to worship you as a group. You want us to worship you on our own. You want our lives to be of worship for you. And so, God, I pray over this congregation, these people that are here right now, that for whatever is preventing us for reaching out to you, to to worshiping you, I ask that you remove that. God, I also ask for forgiveness for all of us for the times that our lives aren't worship. We know that we're not always going to knock it out of the park. But God, I ask that you search us and you find contrite hearts who are still passionate about you, still passionate about seeking you, passionate about coming together with our brothers and sisters, passionate about being heaven on earth, your kingdom, your people, worshiping you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this place. We thank you for your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more.